Thank you, Albert. Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning. And uh, again, welcome to Gateway Bible Church. Um, and uh, certainly want to encourage you to come and join with us this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 5, if you would, please. Acts chapter 5. And um, Bill Fesmeyer is going to come and he's going to read this passage for us. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, all the way through verse 42. It's one big unit. And let's stand together and read this passage, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Okay? Thanks, Bill. So chapter 5 of Acts, beginning at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, They called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, We have, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, but here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Trudus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who were followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan 
or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Lord, we come to you now thankful that you have chosen to reveal your word to us. And Lord, knowing that in doing so, you expect us, Lord, to humble ourselves before and to hear it, Lord, afresh every time as you speaking to us the words of life. So Lord, what we, what we are not, would you make us? Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger, as your servant, Lord, to, to open my mouth and proclaim your truth in such a way, Lord, that you are glorified and your people are more conformed to the image of your Son, and that those that do not know you, Lord, will hear the gospel afresh. And Lord, you will have your way with all of us. We ask now for this to take place in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but I am I'm a person who does enjoy going to the beach. Anyone here like going to the beach? And one of the things I like about it is not so much getting in the water. I just like sitting and just watching the waves, right? I mean, there, there's something soothing about that. But there's something calming and, and therapeutic about that kind of activity. But when I'm done at the beach and I gather my stuff and I put it in the car and we start driving away, it's not like the ocean says, okay, rod's gone, you can stop sending in the waves. No, the waves continue. They don't Stop. They are relentless. And friends, as we come to our text today, what we're going to find is opposition to the word and work of God. And it's a constant reality. Satan will not stop doing all he can to attempt to undermine the spread of the gospel. And here in Acts 5, as the church begins, and as the apostles seek to take their witness to Jerusalem and even beyond, there is this wave and wave of opposition that is taking place. And it is relentless. It doesn't stop. But God wants us to know something. Friends, hear this. He wants us to be sure of something, that nothing can stand in the way of his mission that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel, that nothing can silence the witness of the word of God. There will be opposition, certainly. That will always be true. And it will be powerful, coming in waves. But God will fulfill what he has promised. I mean, go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you remember, we have this mission statement given by Jesus to the apostles. But you 
will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. Notice he doesn't huddle up with the apostles and say something like this. Look, this this all depends on you. If we're going to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then the end of the earth, you will have to be skillful to avoid those who oppose you. Our goal is is the end of the earth, but we will be lucky to get out of Jerusalem alive. He doesn't say that. He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. And friends, we need to hear that. And the apostles realized that truth. And they were, they were functioning with that as a backdrop for even their present circumstance. And then at the end of the Gospels, in particular in Matthew's Gospel, we have this great commission. And you know the great commission. I'll just kind of summarize it. Jesus says, by my authority, I am sending you to go to baptize and to teach the nations my Gospel. And behold, you can be sure of this. I will be with you every step of the way. You have my authority, you have my power, you have my gospel, you have my presence. So go, be my witnesses to the end of the earth. I'm sending you and this will take place. And now, as opposition to the gospel raises its ugly head, Jesus wants us to be sure that nothing can silence the word of God. No man No institution, no law, no ideology, no ruler, no protests, no religion can silence the word of God and the spread of the word of God to accomplish Christ's mission on this earth. Nothing can silence the word of God. Nothing can stop the word of God. Now, we feel the pressure, but the truth is that nothing can stop what God is seeking to accomplish. And when we rest in the fact that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel, then we can see that God is calling us to something. He's calling us now to continue our bold witness in the face of opposition because our God is always working to take his word to the end of the earth. You see that? So on the truth that nothing can stop the word of God, We then, as his followers, are now committed to be bold because God is working in this. Opposition is there, but God is saying, you're going to be my witnesses, and I will give you power, and my will will be accomplished. So don't give in to the opposition, but be bold to maintain your witness because God is always providentially at work, taking his word to the end of the earth. Now, if we think of this passage from a a structure perspective, there's really two parts. There's there's basically two arrests and two deliverances. The apostles' arrest and deliverance from prison, verses 17 through 24, and then the apostles' arrest and deliverance from death in verses 25 through 42. But that's not going to be our outline for today. That's just the structure. I I would like to kind of look at this a little bit differently. I think we'll want to look at it from the perspective of the, the, the waves of opposition that are constant, and then the waves of God's providence that counteract that or are at work to accomplish his purposes. So let's begin by looking at the waves of gospel opposition. Now, 
who are we primarily talking about here? Well, it's the religious leadership made up of the Sadducees, who are the, the liberal Jews at that particular point. I want to say liberal. Don't think politically liberal. Think, think theologically liberal. They are more concerned about their relationship and the freedoms they have. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in supernatural stuff, right? They're kind of more traditional type people, but, but free to kind of act and behave how they want. But they, they have this, they're typically from the, the more wealthy people, and they, they have status in Jerusalem. And then you have the Pharisees who are more the conservative party. And by conservative, that means they're theologically conservative. They are the ones who are committed to be scholars and strict keepers of the law. And you put them together with a few other, uh, a few other people, and they, they make up this group called the Sanhedrin. These are the, it's the same group that Jesus was brought before and who was condemned to death by. But now the apostles are going to be brought before them. All right? They would be the equivalent of Israel's executive, legislative, and judicial branches of the government. Rome was ultimately in charge, to be sure, but Rome had given the governance of the region to the Sanhedrin. He'd given them authority to carry out whatever they needed to do to, to make sure that there was no unrest. So this opposition would be like Christian leaders being called to give an account before the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court. I, I want you to see that this is no small conflict. This is a huge encounter that the apostles have in Jerusalem. It was full-blown opposition. It was religious and political. And, and they, the religious leaders, wanted to snuff out this, this Jesus movement that's happening in Jerusalem. So how do these Jewish leaders respond to the apostles' continued witness? Well, if you want to go back to chapter 4 and verse 18, I just want to trace something for you to get us to this point. What we find there is that, that the apostles are brought to this, this group and, and they're told to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And the apostles respond in verse 19 of chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God uh, uh, or, or listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. In other words, the apostles are saying, look, we're not going to deny what we saw. We saw it. I mean, we were there, right? We're not going to lie about what we know is true. If you're asking us to lie, we're not going to do that. So we're not going to stop speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it happened. It's truth. And then in verse 32 through 36, we find this wonderful fruit of the apostles' witness taking place in the life of the church. This gospel witness was so full of God's descending grace, if you remember. It brought this unusual unity, this fruitful ministry, and this gracious generosity with, with uh, uh, Barnabas as the, the main example. Son of encouragement. And then at chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, which is right before our text, we're given this summary of all the great ways that the new church was impacting Jerusalem for good. People were being taught God's word. They were being healed of their sicknesses. Demons were being cast out. The bottom line is that this new community of Jewish believers was positively impacting the lives of thousands in Jerusalem. Something the religious leaders were not able to do. 
These new believers under the leadership and the teaching of the apostles are now empowered by God and by God's Holy Spirit. And it is shaking the foundations of the temple where the religious and political leadership ruled. So how do these religious political leaders respond to the apostles' continued witness? There's three things. And there's three ways in particular that I want to show you. In fact, you may have noticed several words in the narrative given to us by God that will provide insight into what was taking place in the hearts of the religious elites as they encounter the apostles and their teaching. What we see there are their thoughts, their beliefs, their attitudes that are all driving them to actually respond in this way. And what we'll see is that these are growing waves of opposition to what the apostles were doing as they witnessed in Jerusalem. So the first response is this, an emotional response. An emotional response. What began as an annoyance in chapter 4, verse 2, where it says they were greatly disturbed by what was happening, has now turned into jealousy. Jealousy. Certainly the high priests and the rest of the religious leadership have reason to be jealous. Why? There's a renewed interest in the things of God. Their people are are gathering at Solomon's portico at the temple where the apostles are teaching and preaching. There's this renewed passion about about, committing to this community and, and living life together and being generous and caring for one another. Whereas the temple had become an empty shell of religious ritual and formality. What we have with the apostles in this new Jesus movement was life and and, and food and true partnership, fellowship. They had something to be jealous about. This is something they wanted, but they couldn't accomplish. Why? Because the, the life of their Judaism had been zapped away. But their jealousy, friends, is disguised as justice. They may arrest and imprison the apostles for preaching Christ, but it is their jealousy that is driving their actions. Here was the church in Jerusalem as a result of people being changed by the gospel, doing good deeds among the people. But in their minds, we can't have that. We can't have people being healed of sickness and of demonic activity. How, how dare they come and worship this rebellious man that we kill? I mean, how dare they? How dare you country folk come here and preach about the resurrection? How dare you come here and take over what we are doing here in Jerusalem? Remember, they're, they're going to the temple. And they're preaching and teaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And the people are attracted to them, not what else is going on in the temple. Now you can understand where the jealousy is taking place. And even when we look at our world today, we can see that jealousy is behind the words and actions of those who are opponents to God. There's jealousy. Secondly, there's fear, verse 26. In this one verse, we see that the political climate in Jerusalem is very delicate. And as the the soldiers go to arrest the apostles, because they're back in the temple, it it says very, very carefully that they didn't want to arrest them with force. They they kind of, they, they arrested them, but 
but made sure that they weren't doing anything that was going to upset the people, right? They were concerned about the people. They didn't want to get on the wrong side of the people, and they certainly didn't want to go on the wrong side of Rome. They were concerned that people might stone their own soldiers. It's an insight, friends, into the, the brutality that was taking place during that time when soldiers would go out and would actually arrest people. So the, they, they fear the spreading of the apostolic message. They fear this people who have embraced the apostolic message. They fear the general public who might turn on them quickly. It's a very delicate time. So there's jealousy, there's fear, and then there's hatred or rage. Look at verse 33. Another emotional response. The idea of, of rage or being enraged means to be sawn in two, literally, to be cut to the heart or to be infuriated. The, the word envisions a visible reaction. Red faces full of fury. Fists that are shaking in the air, right? Shouted insults. In other words, the words of Peter and the apostles penetrated so deeply that they are enraged. And now in this passage, we're told they want to even kill them. So this is all an emotional response. Emotional response. Their emotions have been stirred up by the clarity and the truth of the apostles' witness that has exposed their guilt. The God of our fathers, verse 30, raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, they heard the apostles, and they hated everything the apostles were saying. They hated what the apostles were standing for. Ultimately, they hated Christ. But notice that the focus of their hatred is not primarily the message of the gospel, but that they, the religious elite, are being singled out for blame for the death of Jesus. In other words, they are taking the apostles' words as a political attack and are concerned the apostles are trying to turn the people against them, which is not what the apostles are doing. The apostles are just saying simply, look, this is what you did. You killed him. And God raised him. I mean, these are just the facts, right? The apostles' witness is only offensive because it's speaking the truth. And as they speak the truth, the facts are communicated, and facts are stubborn things. Friends, when we speak the gospel, we must be careful to speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We communicate things like, we are sinners, and so are they. In other words, we're, we're not speaking to condemn people, we're speaking to identify with what we already are, and we know that we are. We, we communicate that Jesus died on the cross for sinners just like us. We communicate that forgiveness comes to sinners who confess their sin and repent. To confess is to agree with God that what he says about our sin is true, and to repent is to turn away from the path that we have been on toward Christ, who is now to be our Lord and Savior. But friends, it is to this ownership of sinfulness that the world rages. How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you condemn me for the way I choose to live my life? 
How dare you think you can preach to me that you think you're better than me? Well, I didn't actually say that unless I said it. And if I did, then you're right and I'm wrong. But that's what they hear because they don't want to acknowledge the sinfulness that God is exposing. And certainly the problem is either we have not been clear enough in our preaching or teaching or sharing the gospel, or they're not being humble enough as they hear the truth. In our evangelistic conversations, we must be careful to not convey that we think that we're better than the people we're talking to, but to convey that we are just as guilty as our fellow man. By grace, we have been forgiven. We are undeserving of his kindness, but thankful for his forgiveness. This is what God calls us to as we witness. It's not to go around and condemn. It's to go around and say, I am condemned, but I'm also forgiven. And that same forgiveness can be true for you. And friends, the fact of man's sinfulness is a universal truth, not just a unique truth for those who are not like us. And so, friends, we've got to be really, really careful that in our, I might want to say, evangelistic endeavor, we're going after people's specific sin as opposed to going after their sinful condition because it can feel like you're going after their sin and their particular lifestyle choice, their particular behavior, when really what you're doing with the gospel is you're wanting a whole life change. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't just remove one particular sin. So there's this emotional response. Secondly, an emotional response then kind of gives birth to this legal response. Remember I said it is their jealousy that is disguised as justice. And so now we see a legal response taking place in our passage. They'll use the law to their benefit to exercise their justice. So first of all, the use of the law, the use of the law. And they, can, they specifically say, don't speak in the name of Jesus. Now, you've got to think about this. Here come these people to Jerusalem. And they start spreading this news about this Jesus who was crucified and now is risen. And they don't like what they're hearing. So they come to a conclusion and say, well, let's make a law and say that they can't do it. So they make a law and they tell the people, you can't speak this way anymore. But they continue to speak this way. And then they come back to them and say, look, you broke the law. Just think about the logic of this. You don't like it, you make a law because you don't like it, and now you're coming and saying, well, you broke the law. Wait a second, well, you made the law. I mean, how hypocritical is that? I mean, you just you can just willy-nilly make a law. It says, you can't speak this anymore. But now they're hiding behind the law rather than actually acknowledging their own jealousy. Okay. Notice what it says, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Greatly disturbed because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 4, verse 18. Commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They, they just came up with this law because they didn't like what was going on. 
My friends, this is, this is what happens. There's a, there's a use of the law. And we've heard it, friends, smugly used over the past couple of years. Someone is saying to Christians, I thought you Christians pride yourself in being law-abiding citizens. So how is it that you're not willing to abide by these laws? Well, the truth is that God's word commands us to do all we can to honor those who are in authority over us and to obey the laws of the land. But there is an exception there. When the law violates what the word of God commands us to think and believe and to do, then we must obey God rather than men. That's what the apostles are saying here. And everything, by the way, by their actions, reflects that. So what are some of the examples maybe in our context where the government is making laws to restrict the church's gospel witness? In our particular context. I'll just get a couple of them. There's probably, there's, I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about. But the first thing is really rampant. You've seen in the news recently is critical race theory. You say, well, how is that a law that's affecting the church? Because ultimately critical race theory seeks to silence Christians by saying you don't have the right to be heard, especially, especially if you are white and suburban. But friends, it isn't our voice that matters. <laughs> It's God's voice that matters. And God's voice is not white. It's not Asian. It's not Hispanic. It's not African. And we need to be sure that we teach it and preach it that way. Another one would be this whole idea that's come up the past number of years um, with conversion therapy. You say, what in the world is that? Well, it's a term that was used to describe the psychotherapeutic practices by psychotherapists years ago to treat those who were homosexuals who had different, might we say, sexual orientation. And they would use these horrible treatments like shock therapy, stuff like that, right? And it was really abusive, things that we would be offended at. But the term has now come to mean that it's thoroughly unethical, unprofessional, repugnant, abusive, and reprehensible for anyone, in particular a Bible-believing church or Christian, to pray for or counsel toward any kind of movement out of the LGBTQ lifestyle. Now, friends, that is a direct attack against the church, to silence the church. But, of course, what they're offended at is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the gospel can and will change people who once identified as LGBTQ+. No, they say, that's offensive. You can't preach that. Which is what they're doing because they're preaching at us. But the gospel changes people's lifestyle and behavior and more importantly, their heart. That is Christianity 101. So to embrace that conversion therapy is something that we should not be doing is to say that we can't ask people, we can't proclaim the gospel and say that it's going to change you because you're not allowed to do that. But you see, it's a law. And you hide behind the law. Well, this is the law of the land. You can't do that. Friends, if we're Christians... We have to. We must. Why? Because it's the truth. 
And friends, hear this. It is sheer hypocrisy for the LGBTQ plus supporters who oppose conversion therapy for sexual orientation away from the LGBTQ plus lifestyle on the one hand, but on the other hand, they advocate for conversion therapy for children with gender dysphoria towards LGBTQ lifestyles. In other words, you can't tell them you can't have this lifestyle. God is going to change you. When they're going into schools and in libraries and different places, pulling kids to say, you know what, maybe this is who you are. You don't have to be straight. But that's okay. That conversion therapy is fine, but the other is not. You see the hypocrisy there. But who cares about truth, facts, or logic in a feelings-oriented society? When your feelings rule, Facts and logic doesn't matter. You've all had kids, and you've had toddlers. Facts don't matter. All I want is to be satisfied with what I want. That's the use of the law. Secondly, another legal response is the use of incarceration, imprisonment. Not only did they use the law, but they they would imprison these apostles now. If you teach something that runs contrary to to what what we want to be about, our orthodoxy here in Jerusalem, we're going to put you in prison. If you don't conform to what we've said must be done, you're going to be put in prison. And we find here that they are put in prison. Verse 18, you will notice that Peter and the apostles were all put into public prison. So this is not the normal kind of prison you would think of that we have in our country where you know, there's this kind of complex out in the middle of the countryside with big walls and lots of barbed wire and stuff like that. You don't see anyone. This also is not the kind of prison where people are working out with weights and you know, baking food and going to the library, right? This is a public prison. This was located in the heart of the city. It's public, meaning that people can see you in prison. And the purpose of it was to warn people to say, look, you don't want to do what they have done because you will now be in this place. You will receive the shame. And by the way, they're not feeding you in prison. They're not clothing you in prison. They're not giving you anything in prison except for a hard time. And the only people that would come to your aid were your family and your friends. They would bring food They would bring blankets. They would bring things that would help you while you were there. And it's interesting that the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 34, we have this stated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here's what's happening in that that verse. They had people who were in prison, friends, family who were in prison, and they were willing to go and bring them food and bring them you know, clothing or bring them something to protect them from the elements. And by coming to the prison, you are, in a sense, being accused of guilt by association. You're risking your home, your possessions, even your family, by coming along and helping someone who's in that prison. Friends, this is, these are the tools that are used. But it's a step removed, isn't it, from that emotional response. Now it's kind of like this legal thing. Well, you, you failed to abide by the law. 
Yeah, but you're still emotional in this whole process. And we see that their emotions run through this text, not just at the front end of this text. And the use of the law is being, is being used here, in a sense, as a, as a step removed. But we're going to use it to accomplish our purposes. So we have the emotional response, the legal response, and also we then ultimately have a physical response. This wave continued to, to, to come in against the apostles and their preaching. Verse 33 tells us that they were enraged by what the apostles were saying, that they wanted to kill them. I don't know if you've ever been on the other side of that kind of response. But I mean, they are not just upset, they are enraged. They are ready for mob response, right? To, to pull their limbs from their bodies. They are angry and they're going to do something about it, right? But then in verse 40, we're told ultimately that they beat them instead of killing them. But don't read this as, you know, a few punches and kicks on their way out. This was the 40 lashes last one. Deuteronomy 25, the law stated that a man could receive no more than 40 lashes, so the Jews would give 39 to make sure they weren't breaking the law. This was a severe beating, and some people did not survive this beating. And friends, do you, do you see the progression that's taking place here? An emotional response, and this kind of like this wave that's now mixed in with this legal response, that's now mixed in with this physical response. One's leading to the other and leading then to the other. And friends, we see this, this emotional response around us, don't we? It's in the news, it's on TV, it's in our schools, it's in our politics. We see the legal response with the help of, of godless lawmakers and judges. But what is likely to be next is the physical response. There's a wave, friends, that could potentially happen in our lifetime where Christians are going to be not just ridiculed and responded to emotionally or the laws of the land are going to be used against them, but there is going to be a legitimizing of physical um, responses against us as a people group. And in this example, we can see how such opposition works. Just think about it. This is how things typically work when, when there are uprisings. First of all, you arrest the leader. In this case, it was Peter and John. And if that doesn't work, you arrest all the leadership. This is the apostles. And then what's next? You start going after the followers. There's a progression here. There's a wave of progression. And friends, we want to we see here that opposition comes in waves. It comes with emotion. It comes with law. And it comes with, with, with a physical response against the church. But friends, hear this. As we move now from the waves of, of, of opposition, we want to move to now the waves of divine provision. And we want to remind ourselves that the purpose of this passage is not to magnify the real opposition that Christians will face. That the goal here isn't to say, oh, you should be afraid because of the opposition of the gospel. We need to realize it's there. We need to see what's happening in our world. You turn on, you know, CNN or Fox News, you see things happen, you're like, I know exactly what that is. Why? Because this is what the Lord said would happen. Right? But what's happening here? 
is God is giving all this to drill into these apostles here at the beginning of what he's doing and in, in, in birthing his church. He wants them to understand that God's word will not be silenced. Opposition is great. There's a lot of strategies there, but God's word will not be silenced. Christ will make good on his commission. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the end of the earth. Jesus is empowering his people through the Spirit to go, to stand, and to speak the words of life. And yes, there's opposition, but let me show you how I deal with opposition. First of all, notice the continued, and that's a Keyword, the continued outworking of God's providence. God's providence simply means God carrying out his plan according to his wishes. In other words, this opposition didn't stop God's plan. Now notice, first of all, the example we have here is that these apostles are delivered from prison by an angel. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like a pretty wonderful thing. It doesn't really matter who this angel is, but the angel brings about a divine intervention to deliver the apostles from prison so that they can get back to proclaiming the word of God. Now, if you were put in prison for your faith, and you were left in there for a while, and you were somehow released from prison, miraculously, supernaturally, what would you probably do? What would, you, what would your response likely be? Probably it would be, I am heading home, right? I'm going to go home, and I am going to figure out what I can do next. Or maybe you're going to um, get something to eat, or you're going to get some rest or something like that. But what happens here is that this angel comes and this angel delivers them so that they can go back to proclaiming and being witnesses in the temple. Now, this will not be the last time God intervenes with people that are in prison. Acts chapter 12, Peter is rescued from jail by an angel. Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are are rescued through an earthquake. And all these deliverances just reinforce the fact that God is sovereign to carry out his purposes. And so we must always remember that God doesn't guarantee our deliverance. And this is so important, friends. We read here, oh, there's a deliverance. But God doesn't always do that, does he? Sometimes he chooses to, to work his providence and provide deliverance, but at other times he doesn't. In fact, we have a wonderful example of that in in Paul's letter to to, to Timothy, 2 Timothy. It's his last letter, and at the end of his letter, at the end of all the the kind of stuff that he's talking about, instructions he's giving to Timothy, he says in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. See, that is God's providence working through his obedience. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth to live another day. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. What he's saying is, look, Paul understood that he could be rescued in this life to serve Christ again, or he could be rescued in death to be with Christ forever. And Paul was fine with either option. 
God doesn't guarantee our deliverance. But it's right for us to pray for it. And it's right for us to, to, to ask God to give us wisdom and discernment that if we are not delivered, to do the right thing for his glory, knowing that he is still at work in whatever it is to carry out his purposes. So delivered from, uh, from prison by the angel, delivered from death by Gamaliel. When the Sanhedrin rose up enraged by the apostles' witness and wanted to kill them, God, by his providence, worked through Gamaliel, not a follower of Christ, but a staunch Pharisaical Jew, worked through him to change the outcome of the Sanhedrin's rage. It's a wonderful little little account we have here, isn't it? Now, Gamaliel was one of the uh, most respected theologians at that time. Um, He was a Pharisee. He was honored by all, we're told. Um, In fact, we're told in some Jewish writings, when Rabbi Gamaliel the Elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. I mean, he was an anchor for the Jewish community. In fact, the the Hillel school where he was educated uh, changed their name to use his name as the title for their school. That's how much he was loved and appreciated. And yet God raises him up, not necessarily Gamaliel knowing, oh, God, you're using me right now, but he just, in his own mind, in his own heart, God working through that providentially stands up to speak and to give some words of warning to the rest of the Sanhedrin of which he was a part. And he said, I want you to remember two guys. And he could have mentioned more. Thutius first, who'd risen up with a small following of 400 men. He was killed and his followers dispersed. In other words, it was over before you knew it. Then Judas the Galilean, who rose up and drew many people with him. In fact, the records show that there was quite a lot that, that, that were drawn with him. He too perished and his followers were scattered. I mean, that's just a reality. Look, these things can rise up and they can go. So be careful that you don't jump in too fast. Why don't you just let it fizzle out? And ultimately, he says this. And this is, this is really what is amazing. It's what comes out of his mouth next. And this is verse what 38. He advises the Sanhedrin to keep away from the apostles and to let them alone. Listen to what it says. So in the, presence, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking of man, if this... For if this plan or or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Now, I don't think even a messenger of God could have said it even clearer than that. So out of the mouth of one who was not a Christian, not a follower of, of the gospel, God used him to steer this raging Sanhedrin away from actually killing these apostles. So he's arguing this entire matter should be left in God's hands. If God is in it, you can't stop it. Same message, isn't it? If God is in it, you can't stop it. Like I said, Gamaliel wasn't for the movement, but he had enough sense to speak wisdom into the emotionally charged Sanhedrin. Now, friends, oh, that God would raise up some Gamaliels in our U.S. Congress to speak wisdom to all the representatives who daily shake their fists at God. We should pray to that end. 
You say, well, it wouldn't it be great if we had Christians in our government? Yes, but God doesn't have to work through Christians. <laughs> he can work providentially through whomever he chooses to work. So we can pray, generally speaking, for God to raise up people like Gamaliel to speak wisdom. So we have this outworking of God's providence. Delivered from prison by an angel, delivered from death by Gamaliel. Secondly, I want you to notice the continued obedience of God's people. The continued obedience of God's people. And the continued obedience of God's people, first of all, we see in verses 20 and 21 when they are speaking in the temple. The angel, having delivered the apostles from prison, gives them specific instructions. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm releasing you from jail, but I want you to go to the temple. Like I said before, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, I've released from jail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home and see my family and maybe put my feet up for a little bit and try and contemplate life. Maybe move to Idaho. I don't know. Whatever might be helpful at this point in time. But that's not what happens here, is it? In fact, there may be some of that that takes place because they were, we're told they were released at night and we find them at daybreak back in the temple, standing and proclaiming their witness of the gospel. This mission is continuing. We see their ongoing, their continued obedience, and they're speaking the words of this life. They're speaking the life that comes through the believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and resurrection, and his exaltation. And friends, it is by God's providential grace that the apostles returned to the temple to continue teaching the, the people of Jerusalem. They didn't escape to go home. They were delivered so they could continue the mission. And friends, let's remember, God's deliverance isn't always for our safety and comfort. Sometimes it is so that we can continue to be faithful witnesses. See, we're so captivated by what we want. But these people had already been committed to what gospel, what God had commanded them to be doing. Secondly, I want you to notice this going and standing and speaking, not just in the temple, but then also in the very presence of the Sanhedrin, there in the, the Senate Council. By God's providential design, the apostles are arrested and brought before the perplexed, and I am sure, annoyed and agitated Sanhedrin to give an account. And what an account it is. It is God's providence that has brought them to this powerful place once again. But this time it's not just Peter and John who are speaking, it's all the apostles. Now, we're not exactly sure how that all played out, but all of them are testifying to the wonderful message of the gospel. There's three parts of this glorious witness. First of all, there's reiteration. They repeat what they had already stated the last time they were there before the Sanhedrin. It's kind of like them saying, look, guys, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, thank you for allowing us to speak. We told you that we were going to obey man, or we're not going to obey man, we're going to obey God. We already told you this, right? So just reminding you what we already said. We're not doing anything that we said that we wouldn't do because we can't. Secondly, there is the actual gospel witness. And just here, this is a wonderful account of the gospel, by the way. 
This would be a wonderful passage for you to meditate on just to kind of capture the gospel. You have Jesus chosen, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. He chose Jesus. And understand that they're, they're identifying now with their audience. The God of our fathers. He, according to the Old Testament, raised Jesus. He chose him, right? Then Jesus crucified, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Jesus exalted. God exalted him at his right hand. And by being at his right hand, that means he has just the same authority as the Father. Jesus extended as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, they're saying that he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is now leader and savior for you, not just us. So this isn't just an accounting of facts. They are proclaiming the gospel to this audience who know the word of God, by the way. I mean, they are the, 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 the legal and, and Hebrew and Old Testament experts. And Jesus is witness. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. What a gospel witness that is. Reiteration, gospel witness, and finally, the Holy Spirit evidence. Hear this. The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who, What? Obey him. By implication, they're saying, we are being obedient to God, therefore we have the Holy Spirit. Unless you are obedient to God, guess what? You won't have the Holy Spirit. It's as a result of that, the red mist descends. The rage begins. And Gamila has to stand up and speak. Friends, in both situations, in the temple and in the Senate, God's providence opens a door for gospel witness. Therefore, friends, we must live our lives with a gospel awareness that each day God is at work in our lives to give an opportunity for gospel witness. And it can come under many circumstances, both good and bad, and it can come in many ways, planned, prayed for, spontaneous, circumstantial, God places us with people to whom we can give an answer of the hope that is in us. This is all part of his providence, whether it's in jail, whether it's in front of the Senate, whether it's at a school board meeting, whether it's with a police officer, whether it's a person at at the checkout counter. Maybe it's a waitress at a restaurant. Maybe it's a neighbor. In all those different situations, God is placing us there to continue this Witness. Now, having been flogged, notice what it says in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had, were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now notice their rejoicing is not based on their circumstances, but on Christ. In other words, they're not rejoicing about being flogged. Being flogged. They're not saying, oh, give it to me again. Hit me harder this time. I want to do this for Jesus, right? They're not, they're not doing that kind of stuff. But what they are doing is they're saying, we understand this is all part of the opposition to the gospel that we are experiencing. And we have, 
we, we, we have, we are counting it worthy that God has considered us worthy to go through and to represent Him so that we could actually proclaim the gospel. Now, this is evidence of what Jesus has said as recorded by Luke in chapter 6 and verses 22 and 23. It should be up on the screen there. Here's what Luke says. These are Jesus' words. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. Is it not up on the screen? Okay. Why don't you turn there? Luke chapter 6. I want you to see that. Because this is almost a mirror image of what Jesus had said would take place. So Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and verse 23. It says this, this is Jesus speaking, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Happy days, friends, happy days. But I mean, Jesus is speaking as if this is going to happen. Verse 23, rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, for so their fathers did to the prophets. What's happening here in Acts 5 is a, is a direct mirror image of what Jesus is saying. They're rejoicing for being counted worthy to be the vehicles of this dishonor. Well, if it's dishonor to those who are opposed to the gospel, then what is it in the eyes of God? Honor. Worthy. Now they're not marching out saying, come on, let's, 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 get, let's suffer some more. Let's get beaten down some more. No, 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 no. But if their faithfulness to the gospel witness results in this kind of behavior from the opposition, then glory be to God. Now, because the apostles have been bold to be witnesses in Jerusalem as evidenced by their beating, they are now leaving the Sanhedrin full of joy. Verse 42, and every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus, right? You can't speak. You can't talk of Jesus. You can't talk about this man. You can't say anything about the resurrection. We'll come after you. We will put you in prison. We'll arrest you. We will flog you. We might even kill you. At the end of the story, and every day, in the temple and from house to house, in other words, in public and in private, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus or that the Messiah is Jesus. The apostolic witness goes on. Nothing can silence the witness of the gospel. Nothing can silence the word of God. Nothing can stop it. And friends, just some concluding thoughts here. Two kind of main ideas. First of all, I want you to see the ultimate powerlessness of those who oppose God. Even with all their emotional legal and physical opposition to the spread of the gospel, the word of God was being preached and taught throughout Jerusalem. 
And it would soon spread to Judea and Samaria. As much as they tried, the religious elite could not stop this new Jesus movement. Now, on a human level, those who oppress God seem so powerful, don't they? But hear this, they are playthings in the hand of God. They're like Goliath, roaring in front the Israelite army, challenging them, mocking them, scorning them. And little David comes along as the chosen vessel of God and defeats Goliath. But it's not so much that David defeats Goliath, it's that God defeats Goliath through his chosen instrument. And in the same way, friends, we don't stand alone to fight against the world. God is always standing right behind us. And friends, as you look at the world around you that is ultimately shaking its fists at God and the gospel that comes through his Son, you can be sure that the attempts to snuff out God's gospel will ultimately prove powerless. Try all they want, but nothing can stop or silence the spread of the word of God. Now, there might be some dark days. There may be challenges. That's what happens when there's opposition. But we know the end of the story. And we know that the progress of the word of God and the gospel will continue. And for these apostles, they needed to know that what, what Jesus had started in Jerusalem and what he said would happen in Judea and Samaria would ultimately go to the end of the earth. The ultimate powerlessness of those who oppose God. Secondly, the ultimate fruitfulness of those who follow God. First of all, I want you to notice the fruit of prayer. Back in chapter 4, verse 29 and 30, this is what the apostles prayed, and this is what God did to answer, right? It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. But don't stop there. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. In other words, We want to be bold. We want to continue to witness while you are carrying out your providence. The fruitfulness of prayer. Friends, prayer is a means by which God brings about his providence. Secondly, the fruit of providence. God has promised to make them witnesses and he delivered. He said he would. It's been a rough road but he's fulfilling what he said he would do. Third, the fruit of obedience. They had obeyed and God had rewarded. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1, just as it begins. Now, at this time, while the disciples were what? You read it there? Increasing in number. (laughs) You just see the slow progression happening here in Jerusalem. There's people are coming to faith. Even with the persecution, even with the apostles being taken to prison, people are coming to faith. Disciples are, are embracing Christ as our Lord and Savior. They're, they're jumping in. The church is growing. And finally, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Notice how the apostles went about their mission as witness. I just came up with three words. I'm sure you could come up with more. 
because they were under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were respectful. They were peaceful. You don't, you don't see them fighting against the soldiers, do you? There's nothing in the text that indicates that they were somehow you know, resisting arrest. No, they weren't doing that. The soldiers come and say, you need to stop, come with us. They stopped and they came with them, trusting that God was working through it all. They were obedient, they were bold, and they were joyful. Would that we would be that way, right? In the face of the same kinds of things that these people were going through. Friends, since no man, no institution, no law, no ideology, no ruler, or no religion can silence the word of God, God's children are called to continue their boldness, or their bold witness, I should say, in the face of opposition, because God is always at work taking his word to the end of the earth. Now, friends, it's good for us to kind of jump into a text like this and swim around. Because as we, as we get out of the pool and we start drying ourselves off, we need to be reminded that God doesn't stop what he promises will take place. And it's good for us to be reminded that he is working his providence to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. And he does it through his servants, primarily, but also through ungodly, pagan, atheistic, whatever, individuals. But he's at work. And that means we can get up afresh every day with whatever we're facing, whatever spiritual challenges that are before us, as the waves of opposition come, and we can say, God, give me strength to do what you've called me to do this day. Our opposition may not come in the form of being put in prison. It might just come in, in the form of just being inundated by information. As we listen to the TV or the radio, or as we hear people talk at our place of work, whatever, and we're like, man, man, I don't know if I even want to open my mouth and let people know I'm a Christian. I say, hey, wait a second. God has called me to go, to stand, and to speak. And to trust that he is at work through my obedience. May we all be faithful to do that in the context that God has given us to live out his gospel. Lord, help us today. This is a hard passage, Lord, in many ways. We have for the most part, grown up in a country where the Christian culture has experienced comfort, has celebrated prosperity, has rejoiced over um, wealth and experience, and the kind of prospect of the, the dark cloud of opposition that is slowly gaining momentum around us seems very daunting. And Lord, there's none of us in here that, that, that want to jump into the cloud. We're not hungry for that, Lord. But Lord, may we have the same kind of attitude that these apostles had, Lord, that, 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 that we come to you praying for boldness in our witness. 
And Lord, as you orchestrate our lives, whatever they may be and wherever they may take us, Lord, as we have opportunity, may we not cower in the face of opposition, but may we trust, Lord, that your word will not be silenced and that you will accomplish your providential plan even through our weakness. Lord, we, know, we need that strength. We need that hope, Lord. We need that certainty. We need that perspective to keep taking a step day by day in the face of this dark cloud of opposition. Give us strength. Give us a reminder, Lord, that you're walking with us and that you will, Lord, accomplish your purposes in spite of the daunting darkness that is before us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.